Uh, it is a wonder that we gather to meet with our God, uh, the maker of heaven and earth, who summons us and who communes with us through his word. And we enjoy these blessings, uh, not because they are what our hands deserve, but uh, because of the mediation and the intercession of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's most fitting that as we draw near to partake in the blessing of worship, to rejoice in the gift of true and saving knowledge of our God and the gift of eternal life, and we do so acknowledging the sin of our hearts and the sin of our hands and the forgiveness that comes in Christ and in him alone. For it is in this way that God opens our eyes more and more to the magnitude of his mercies and the magnitude of his grace, as the blood of Christ was shed not for abstract sins, but for particular sins, which the Lord in his infinite wisdom continues to allow us to feel, to increase us in our humility and to increase us in our dependence upon the only Savior of sinners in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we ask now that we enter into a time of confession of sin. We'll open with a time of private and silent confession, and I'll bring our time of confession to a close with a pastoral prayer. I'll invite you into a time of private confession now. Almighty and merciful and gracious God and Father, now we stand before you and acknowledge the heinousness of our sins, the sad state of our hearts, continuing to grapple with indwelling sin and the shameful and difficult fact that uh, the temptations of the world and the devil find uh, much ground in our hearts. We acknowledge, O oh Lord, that we daily break your law in thought and in word and in deed. And so much of it, Lord, escapes our notice. And we are all guilty, Father, of, of minimizing our own sin and maximizing the sins of others and show ourselves doubly foolish. And so, Lord, as your people, we ask that you would be pleased to forgive us for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
how good and how tender and how kind you are, Lord, and that you do not reveal the full scope of our sin, for surely we would be undone were we to see it. But according to your infinite wisdom, you allow us to feel the ache of conviction, Lord, not to drive us to despair, but to drive us into the arms of Christ in whom there is true forgiveness and who leads forth in the path of life. And so we ask, Lord, that more and more you would open our eyes to our sin, that we might flee from it. That more and more you would teach us to hate our sin, O Lord. And that you would overcome, Father, even this experience with our sin for good, bringing about a humility of heart, a greater portion of understanding towards others who continue to rustle and stumble into sin, and a greater awe at the love that you have poured out upon us in the Lord Jesus Christ and the forgiveness and the righteousness which you yourself supply. Be pleased to do these things, O gracious Heavenly Father, for we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. And for all those looking in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, confessing sin in accord with God's holy word, hear these words of comfort which come from Micah chapter 7. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Yes, and amen. Our God long ago swore an oath. He bound himself such that in the fullness of time, the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to forgive sinners and to realize the fullness of the promises made from the very beginning to the glory of his grace and mercy. Yes and amen. I'll invite you to stand as we sing in response Psalm 20b, The Lord in Your Distress Attend. We'll sing together.
Amen. You may be seated. And if you have a Bible and you'd like, you can turn in the book of Proverbs to chapter 5. Continuing our evening readings from the book of Proverbs, we come to chapter 5. We'll read verses 5, nope, chapter 5, verses 7 through 14. Lend your attention. This is the very word of God. And now, O sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life you groan when your flesh and body are consumed. And you say, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Before we turn to our scripture reading from Exodus, I'll invite you to join me in prayer as we ask God's blessing upon the reading and the preaching of his word. Now, Father, the blessings uh, which your word sets forth are wonderful, O Lord. But we know that the natural mind does not understand them, uh, for they are spiritually discerned. And so we acknowledge that we uh, need um, desperately uh, for the ministry of the Spirit uh, to attend uh, the reading and the preaching of the word uh, such that your word finds the good soil uh, which the spirit prepares and receives the watering and the sun which come from you uh, to bring forth uh, the fruit of faith and hope and love. We cannot do these things, O oh Lord, uh, but you delight to do them. Only you can do them. And so we ask that you would do them. Be pleased to prepare us. And be pleased to send forth your word in power. That it might have its good effect. For we ask in Christ's name, amen. We're continuing through the Westminster Shorter Catechism. We come to that portion explaining what is uh, forbidden in the first commandment. So I'll read Exodus chapter 20, verse 3 to begin, and then I'll read question 47. This is the word of God. Uh, you shall have no other gods before me. And thus ends the reading of God's word. 
And then question 47, what is forbidden in the first commandment? The first commandment forbiddeth the denying or not worshiping and glorifying the true God as God and our God and the giving of that worship and glory to any other which is due to him alone. And we hear the plainness of what is forbidden in the first commandment. It's sinful to deny the true and living God. It's sinful to withhold treacherously worship from him. It's sinful to give that worship and glory to any other. Do you do that? I think it's easy when it's framed that way to convince ourselves that, well, we don't do such things. I'm not an avowed atheist, so I don't deny that there is a true and living God. I'm not bowing down to idols, so I'm not giving my worship to another. It's striking how superficial an understanding that we have of each of these commandments such that we can roll past this and feel relatively no conviction. You know that's true. I read these Ten Commandments every Sunday. Are any of us struck in the reading of them? No. Certainly not to the degree to which we've violated them. <laughs> and so what's keeping us from that conviction? Well, partly it's understanding, understanding how uh, what is commanded and what is forbidden works out in all of its various entailments. And so just as we spent some prolonged time detailing some of the specifics of what is commanded of us in owning the true and living God as our God, it seems good to spend some time with the specifics of what it looks like to deny God, to withhold worship from him, and to give that worship to another. Because the fact is that we break this every day in thought, in word, in deed. And to the degree that we're not convicted by these things is, in a sense, a degree to which we're withheld from blessing. Because we know that the Lord's blessing comes subsequently to one who is brokenhearted over their sin. And so it's a difficult and perhaps uncomfortable endeavor, a prolonged season of asking the Lord to apply his law to our hearts, to humble us, to magnify Christ, to send us into his arms for forgiveness and that portion of grace necessary to worship him and him alone. But I assure you, it is a good gift and a good endeavor. So this week we ask, what are some specific ways we do these very things. So first, we deny God when we demand answers of him which he has not decided to give. The way the Westminster Larger Catechism puts it is, we deny God when we brazenly pry into his secret will. It belongs to God and to God alone to know all things. We want to know all things. 
and thereby we show our foolishness. It belongs to us, and it's most suitable and fitting for us to receive what his infinite wisdom deems fit to reveal to us about his plans and his purposes. The classic text for this is Deuteronomy 29, 29. This is one that's worth memorizing, for it comes up a lot in dogmatics and the distinction between God's revealed will and his secret will. I commend it to you. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of the law. Now, immediately our hearts rise up because this is that ancient sin into which we have fallen. That God has the right to withhold things from us. <laughs> he has that right by virtue of who he is as God. To refuse him that right or to take exception with him for exercising that right, is to deny him as God. It's to fall into that ancient sin, that ye are gods, just as he. There are matters that belong properly to the Lord, and the Lord alone, Moses says that plainly, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. There's something that he is deemed fit not to tell us. And they're his. And the implication is, you're going to want to know them, and it's sinful. Let God be God. We understand this in our families, don't we? Do any of you, as parents, tell your children everything? <laughs> it would be wrong and cruel to do so, would it not? To expose children to the complexities of the moral decisions, the life decisions that we try to make as parents, the uncertainty that we feel over basically everything we put our hands to. Would that be appropriate to tune them into? They don't have the capacities for it. It would be cruel to bring them into the confused world that we occupy as adults. And if it's cruel for us to foist those things upon our children, how much more so the reality of the infinite God and his eternal decree and the vastness of complexities that go into upholding and directing and providing for the universe. And yet we begrudge him when he doesn't answer our small questions in exactly the way that we demand. If it's unfitting for children to demand of their parents an exhaustive account of everything that parents decide to do, how much more so us of the infinite and eternal God? And yet we know this impulse, don't we? We begrudge him when he doesn't tell us exactly what he's doing at all times. We start to sound like the Israelites of old. Why did you bring us here? We demand an answer. And the veiled accusation is you have no right to do this to us. 
I've seen my own heart flare up in this way, particularly in seasons of trial. What are you doing? Stop it. You have no right to do that. You better explain yourself. This better show up as good somewhere along the line or you've got some explaining to do. Now we can mark that God has given us an ample provision of ways to express perplexity, confusion in a manner that is befitting his children. You think of the laments. How long, O oh Lord? I don't understand. I don't understand. There is a way to take a godly posture of confusion before the Lord. But mark how quickly and how thin a line there is between lament and grumbling. How quickly the song that says, How long, O oh Lord? I don't understand. This doesn't make sense. How quickly it can tip to how dare you? What gives you the right? You better end this soon. Our hearts turn on a dime, as it were. Moving between the two, even from moment to moment in a given trial. Showcasing that indeed there is much sin that is in our hearts. It's easy for us to forget in the midst of difficulty that everything he does is right and good and holy. Not just when we understand it to be such, but because he is right and good and holy and he can do no other and we know this to be the case because there is much that he has given us to know. He has not been stingy with the revelation, as it were. Moses says that the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever. So not only has he revealed himself fully, he's given this revelation to us as a unique possession and not just for one generation, but for subsequent generations, suggesting that it is an abiding possession. It does not fade. It does not change because he does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and always. He is good yesterday, today, and always. He is holy yesterday, today, and always. He is good when the barns are full. He is good when the fig tree is barren. Because he doesn't change. And thus the revelation of himself abides, remains, is true, steadfast, sure, from one generation to the next. Moses rehearses all of this for Israel. This very context in Deuteronomy 29, Moses recalls for them the remarkable deliverance from Egypt. God is gracious and merciful. The remarkable judgment that he poured out upon Egypt. He is just and powerful. The great possession that they have in the commandments of the Lord, he is righteous and holy. There's much that the Lord has made known of who he is and what he is doing in his favorable disposition towards his people. Just because he doesn't answer our specific questions doesn't mean that he doesn't speak words of comfort, kindness, 
and instruction, even when we're disoriented by difficulty. There is much that he has deemed fit not to tell us, but there is so much that he has given us to know of who he is and his purposes towards us in the Lord Jesus Christ. If Moses could delight in the revealed things given unto Israel for their consolation and their instruction, how much more has been given unto us? We who have seen the fullness of time come, we who have seen the Son of God sent forth in this otherworldly display of love towards enemies in the Lord Jesus Christ, we who have seen the Son as the one who heals, as the one who forgives, as the one who is with us in the storm and in the wind, as the one who conquers death itself, as the one who ascended to the right hand and assures us that he is with us unto the end. If Moses could say, Israel, you have a rich portion of revelation sufficient to sustain you when things are difficult, how much more do we have a rich portion? In the Lord Jesus Christ, who has shown that there is no good thing that God will withhold from us because he has given us the choicest gift in the beloved son. Imagine you've been given the riches of Pemberley. This is Mr. Darcy's estate and pride and prejudice. If you haven't read the book, I'm sure you've seen the movie. <laughs> it's a remarkable estate. It's given to you to explore and to have as your own the rooms, the grounds, the gardens, the whole vast estate seemingly inexhaustible to the most intrepid of explorers. But you're told that the grounds just beyond the estate are hidden from you. You're not permitted to go there. Only a sinful heart would despise the vastness that has been given for the uncertainty that lies just beyond the bounds. But mark if we don't have that tendency in our own hearts. To grumble when he doesn't deliver to us the exact specificity of answer we want. Neglecting the vastness of testimony to his wisdom, his power, his goodness, his grace his mercy, his steadfast love, attested on every page of scripture and written in letters of blood in the Lord Jesus Christ and his cross. Let our hearts blush at such an impudent tendency. Let us occupy ourselves with what God has given us to know chiefly his grace and mercy and love and justice and righteousness in the Lord Jesus Christ. And let us seek his grace to content ourselves with his portion, even in times of great difficulty and disorientation. Next, the most common way we give our worship to another is self-love. Self-love. Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3, 1 and 2, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self. Paul here plainly says that the source of much consternation and difficulty in this world will be that everyone is devoted to themselves above all others. 
We can ask, what is self-love? And we can mark first that it's not the same as self-respect. There's a certain basic natural care for the self that is right and good and natural. Paul assumes this in Ephesians 5 when he states plainly, no one hates their own body. <laughs> the Lord Jesus Christ assumes this when he instructs us, love your neighbor as yourself. In both these instances, we see that there's a basic concern which an individual rightly and naturally has over their own well-being. And it's not wrong. But we can also mark how easily what is good becomes what is bad. For self-love is the perversion or the grotesque exaggeration of concern for self. To an unholy and disproportionate degree, such that concern for self, interest in self, dwarfs interest in others, and ultimately interest and concern and love for God. That's what Paul warns against in the passage we read. Once again, and I'll go on. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Calvin points out that the entirety of this list flows out of that first sin of self-love. He pictures here self-love as a poisonous spring, a polluted fountain, and all of these sins as the foul waters which extend naturally from such a polluted font. Why do we love money? Because we can use it to get whatever we want. <laughs> love of self. Why are we proud? Because we stand in awe of ourselves to the disregard of others. Love of self. Why are we abusive? Because we don't get our way and we're willing to hurt whoever gets in our way. Why are we disobedient to parents? Because of the sovereign and inviolable self that admits no claims upon it. And so on and so forth. Isn't this the reason for so much of our division? The division and strife in our homes? Division and strife in our churches? I assure you, if there is strife, you do not need to look far for self-love. I assure you. One of the surest signs of self-love is that you find someone insisting upon their rights and ignoring their duties. One of the surest signs of self-love is someone who insists upon what is due to them while neglecting or refusing to acknowledge what they owe to others. That is the surest way to tear down a church. It's the surest way to tear down any home. 
Many a house has been torn down by a single heart that insists upon the question, what do I want? (laughs) That elevates that question beyond all others such that every other consideration is eclipsed. Conversely, many a household has been built up by hearts that asks, how can I serve others? How can I die to myself that others may gain? Paul ends this section with that parallel. He opens with self-love and closes with lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. For the heart of self-love asks, how can I please myself? And the opposite our heart asks, how can I please my God? <laughs> can we blush over this sinful propensity? Do you feel an ache of conviction at it? If not, I assure you, you are lost. There is no sensitivity to the word of God because we should all feel an ache over this. Because we have all fallen into the sin of self-love. We are all quick to insist upon our rights and slow to take up our duties. We are all quick to ask the question, what do I want? And slow to ask, how can I do good unto others? And we have greater reason to blush even still, don't we? Because who do we belong to? What is the glory of our king? What is the nature of the one who sits at the head of this household? The glory of the Son of Man, the eternal Word of God, the beloved Son is on display in that He came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. And yet, we justify insisting upon our rights. Come on. That's shameful. It's shameful that it's so common in the church. It's shameful that we can justify such a tendency baptizing it in whatever sort of pious facade suits you. Shame on us. We serve the Lord of glory who shows his glory in this, that he did not count equality with God as a thing to be seized upon for his own good, but set aside that glory and took the form of a servant. Experienced a magnitude of wrong which the greatest insult that anyone could ever levy against you wouldn't even register in comparison unto. And yet we feel them acutely, don't we? Our glory besmirched. The offender we shall tear down. And yet Christ prays what? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Shame on us. Can you feel it? 
I hope so. We've been made participants in eternal life because the Son of God did not insist upon his rights, but laid them aside freely. The only one who ever walked this earth who had no business taking the posture of a servant knelt down and washed his disciples' feet. The one who had no business descending to hell upon a cross freely bore the sins of those who crucified him. How small are we? May he humble our hearts in the light of the magnitude of such selfless love, such that we blush at our inclination towards self-love, our propensity to insist upon rights and neglect duties, our propensity to ask not how can I serve others, but how can others serve me in the destruction that those hearts have wrought in our homes and in the household of God. Let us blush and flee from such sinful propensities into the arms of one who welcomes us and who assures us of a better way and who leads us forth and teaches us to take up our cross and to lose ourselves such that paradoxically we find ourselves and live. We violate the first commandment in our dreadful capacity for self-love. Well, is that old hymn sung, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. May the staggering selfless love of God on display in the Lord Jesus Christ, move us to pour contempt, not upon others, but upon our dreadful propensity unto self-love and pride. May it be more and more true of us as we look unto the Lord of glory set forth for our salvation. Join me in prayer. Almighty and merciful God, there is much over which we have reason to blush. And we show our hardness of heart in the slowness with which we admit of such truth brought home. Father, forgive us. May your name be praised in that you who knew the full extent of darkness on display in us sent forth Christ even still. Send us fleeing into the arms of this otherworldly love. Make us slower and slower to exalt ourselves and quicker and quicker to exalt Christ by dying unto ourselves and loving those for whom he died and indeed even our enemies just as you have loved us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask in Christ's name, amen.